Freedom. We are not the states of the United States. We are not provinces of the United States. We are a country. We are a republic. They cannot give us orders. This time, we do not need them. Haiti is in crisis. Violent gangs have grown in number and power over the last few years. They've recently been blocking humanitarian aid and the country's main fuel terminal. Hospitals have closed their doors or reduced capacity during a cholera outbreak. The cost of basic goods like food and gas have skyrocketed, and at least half the country is facing acute hunger. Acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry has requested international aid and special forces from the U.N., but many Haitians oppose foreign intervention, especially by the U.S. According to the Washington Post, the U.S. recently drafted a United Nations Security Council resolution encouraging, quote, the immediate deployment of a multinational rapid action force to Haiti. We asked the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. to participate in this conversation. We also reached out to the State Department. They declined, but both invitations still stand. So how does Haiti move forward? After the break, we get into just that and more. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smartwool. Do you realize how many synthetic materials are in the clothes on your back and feet right now? That's why Smartwool is committed to sustainability, using natural, responsibly sourced merino wool in their gear and recycled materials in their packaging. Enjoy 15% off your first order of base layers, socks, and accessories at smartwool.com. Let's jump into our conversation on the latest in Haiti, where a political and economic crisis has left the country at a standstill. Thousands have taken to the streets to protest. Joining me to talk about this is Whitlor Marincourt. He's the editor-in-chief of the Aibo Post. That's a Haitian newspaper. Whitlor, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Marlena Doubt, a professor of French and African diaspora studies at Yale University. Marlena, it's great to have you back. Oh, thanks for having me, Jen. Now, Whitlaw, again, you're the editor-in-chief of the Aibo Post. What have the last few weeks been like for you and your colleagues? Well, it's a, we are living a, an extremely difficult period. I have this bad habit as a journalist to wake up every morning and check my Twitter feed. And this morning, actually, this very morning, uh, when I checked my Twitter feed, the first tweet that I received is that uh, one of my friends um, and, and journalists in Haiti, Robertson Alphonse, was shot. And um, his his car, the car that he was in, uh, was riddled by bullets. And he was on his way to to make his radio show, which is one of the most popular uh, in Haiti. Uh, actually, the month before, two of my colleagues, journalists, uh, working for other outlets, were killed in Cité Soleil, which is a slum um, embattled in you know, gang violence. Um, and earlier this year, uh, two others were also killed uh, up in the capital in a place called La Boule Douze. So um, according to uh, one uh, organization uh, working with journalists in, in, in the Caribbean, actually Haiti is one of the most dangerous places for journalists uh, in the Western Hemisphere uh, this year. So 
it is a context that is extremely difficult to operate because, uh, like I always say it, my journalists, uh, the folks working for us at Aibu Post are not only professionals uh, telling a story that, you know, they think deserves to be heard. They are also telling their story. They are also, you know, bringing forward information that they are implicated in. And when you are in this context where gangs have control of all but everything, actually, in, in, in Haiti, um, it is extremely difficult to operate and it is extremely difficult to wake up in the morning <clears throat> and do your job professionally when your, 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 your family, when your, your friends, when, when you yourself, uh, you know, are in, in danger. And, and with Laura, I just want, want to be clear, your friend who was shot, was it a fatal shooting? Um, I don't think so. According to the newspaper where he works, his condition is stable, um, and we are still waiting, um, you know, for 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 more news from him. But uh, he's stable now. But his car was riddled by bullets, and he's among the the fiercest journalists we have right now in Haiti. He's independent, uh, which is something extremely refreshing, um, you know, on on radio uh, in Haiti. How has life changed in Port-au-Prince since the assassination of former President Jovenel Moïse last year? I mean, the country was already in deep turmoil uh, when the president was killed last year. Um, Jovenel Moïse was an extremely unpopular president. He was trying to change the constitution unconstitutionally. He, um, you know, before his death, uh, dozens of people were killed uh, in the capital, and including, you know, uh, people in the south of the capital, in Martissan, uh, who had to leave and flee uh, the, con- the, the, um, their, the the neighborhood because of gang violence. So the country was already in deep trauma when he was killed. And actually, people would tell you that his killing is nothing but a surprise in the context where, you know, the gangs were flourishing, uh, you know, during his term and when he's killed the country further plunged into chaos um, and the gangs become more powerful um, and you and also the lack of leadership uh, according to different experts you know um, effective leadership uh, from 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 the government uh, also helped you know, um, making the situation a little bit worse. What updates have there been about the investigation into Moise's assassination? Well, uh, different judges were appointed. I think we are on a fourth or five, fifth judge, uh, if I am to be correct, um, on this assassination. Uh, the different judges say different things for dropping the case. Um, one that we talked to, um, says the government do not have any will whatsoever to find out um, how the president was killed, and he was not given the the, the material means to investigate. And actually, actually, uh, the prime minister himself who replaced the president uh, Jovenel Moïse um, last year when he was assassinated. His name is implicated in the assassination. Mr. Ariel Henry um, was uh, to be questioned by the authorities and he fired two officials, including 
um, one uh, minister of justice and also a prosecutor who were trying to, um, uh, you know, ask him questions about um, the assassination and how his 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 phone and you know the, the phone records uh, would show he was in talk with at least one of the masterminds or alleged masterminds in the assassination. So this is a context where um, more than a year after uh, this assassination, nobody knows. And it's so strange. Uh, who killed the president? Why they killed the president? What is the motive? Um, and the country cannot heal, actually, from this wound, even if he was unpopular. A lot of people will tell you that it's a humiliation, a national humiliation, that people can come on the bed of a sitting president and kill him. We're getting some questions and comments from our listeners. Rodney emails, it appears that the ability of Haiti to self-govern has been lost due to generations of colonialism. This is the same thing that has happened to many African countries via colonialism. And Bonnie tweets, the way I read history, France owes reparations to Haiti. Marlena, can you place this moment within the larger history of Haiti for us? Yes, um, certainly. Haiti has a long history of colonialism um, and colonial intervention stretching back into the 18th century, of course. And um, even right after independence in 1804, it's not as if France suddenly relinquished its claim on the island. In fact, quite the opposite happened. There were dozens of reconquest plans under every ruler from Napoleon to the Bourbons um, once they were restored to power and the monarchy was brought back. And it wasn't just France. The other world powers, because they still maintained slavery either in their colonies or on their own shores, as in the United States, refused to recognize Haitian independence. And in fact, the United States, under President Jefferson in 1806, interfered with the Haitian economy by issuing a trade embargo, which actually brought starvation um, to certain parts of the population. So there's been an extremely long history of international intervention that really reaches back since the earliest days of Haiti's nationhood. And the listener who wrote about the reparations is exactly correct. One of the biggest sort of pressures on Haiti in the 19th century was the fact that Haitian, the Haitian government was forced to pay or to agree to pay 150 million francs as the price of its independence. The interesting thing is that even though that amount was later renegotiated down to 90 million francs in 1838, the Haitian government was forced to take out really draconian loans uh, to pay this back with bank interests and fees. And that indemnity, as it's called, directly led to the U.S. occupation, according to many economists and political scientists, because U.S. banks, what is now Citibank, for example, had interest in um, some of the money that was tied up in those loans and those bank fees. And so we see that the history of intervention kind of continues on up to the present day. And this is the reason for which present day Haitians, as, as we're all hearing, do not want to see any further intervention because the truth is that it's actually never stopped. And even right now, while it looks like there is no intervention, there is intervention because as long as the United States government, the core group and the United Nations continue to support and recognize Ariel Henry as the acting president, acting prime minister of Haiti, they are intervening in Haitian sovereignty since as Widlor pointed out, the vast majority of Haitians do not believe that Henri has a legitimate right to rule the country. 
The United Nations Security Council voted last week to impose sanctions on one powerful gang leader, Jimmy Cherizier. Here's U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, on the approval of those sanctions. This resolution is an initial answer to the calls for help from the Haitian people. They want us to take action against criminal actors, including gangs and their financiers, who have been undermining stability and expanding poverty in their vibrant society. In response, this council sanctioned one of the country's most notorious gang leaders, a gang leader whose actions have directly contributed to the humanitarian crisis that has caused so much pain and suffering. We reached out to Ambassador Thomas Greenfield and did not get a response. We also reached out to the State Department, and they declined to participate in this show, but both those invitations stand. Whitler, what can you tell us about this particular gang leader? Okay, um, Jimmy Cherizier uh, is a former um, Haitian National Police member. Um, he was implicated in several massacres, brutal massacres, uh, in the past years uh, in different slums in Haiti. Um, and right now, he is maybe the most powerful gang leader that Haiti has never known. Um, and single-handedly, uh, on September 12, he decided to block the Terminal Vareux, which is the place where 70% of fuel that is distributed in Haiti comes from, he blocked it. And since that day, actually, the country uh, further plunged into more problems in terms of the fuel cannot be distributed um, and, and, and transportation, uh, you know, is extremely difficult. Hospitals are closing and in every, almost every day, actually, you, you find the news of one institution that is struggling to find gas. And actually, um, just last week, Aibu Post put out a report to explain that some, some institutions, capital institutions, like in the communication center, in the banking, um, uh, sectors, uh, have only, you know, sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks, a little bit more of reserve of gas, of, of fuel, you know, to, to function. So this is a powerful uh, individual who in the past, according to multiple reports, including human rights organizations like Erendidiash in Haiti, um, had ties to, to, to government or people close to the government. And the U.S. sanctioned him um, with other official of the past administration, the Jovenel Moïse administration, for actually organizing uh, massacres, um, etc. So he, he is an extremely dangerous individual um, that um, have ties to business people who paid him uh, in some instances um, so the business can function, which, you know, according to some experts, is financing terrorism. Um, and, 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 you know, who uses his power to, to make more money. We got this tweet from JC who asks, is all the gang violence in the city of Port-au-Prince or in other cities and countryside villages too? They also want to ask Widlore if you feel safe. So can you answer the first part of that? Is the gang violence primarily in Port-au-Prince or are you seeing it in other places as well? Well, this is an excellent question. Um, this is an excellent question uh, because uh, Port-au-Prince is not Haiti. Port-au-Prince is home to about 5 million people. It's the biggest city uh, of the country. But it is important to note that the level of violence that we are seeing in Port-au-Prince and its, its, its neighborhoods uh, is not the same. 
But however, one should point out that, for instance, I'm from Germany, the south of Haiti. Um, when I was a kid, it was a city where nothing ever happened. I mean, we go to beaches and we eat our local foods, etc. But nothing really major never happened. But today, today. Um, we have gang problems in, in, in Germany, the south of Haiti, and increasingly, increasingly, more and more cities are having this gang problem, including Cap Haitian, including Lekai, where, you know, folks coming from the capital, folks coming, you know, from different parts of the country are trying to diversify the way of making money and going into neighborhoods who, and, 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 and cities where, you know, we did not have uh, historically this gang violence problem. So it is a fact that Port-au-Prince is the home for the most cases of rape, kidnappings, um, and, 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 and shootings, but it is also decentralizing um, for the past months and years. So... And briefly, Withler, before we go to break, how safe do you feel right now as as a Haitian citizen, but also as as a practicing journalist? I mean, reporting from Haiti, I was saying that yesterday is like reporting from a from a war zone. I've never been to a war zone, but I when I read my colleagues talking about a war zone, this is it feels like a, a war zone, and you I don't know how safe you can feel. I mean, you have to cope with the situation that you're in, and I choose to stay in Haiti. And this is where I work. We're discussing the latest out of Haiti with Whitlor Marincourt. He's the editor-in-chief of the Aibo Post. That's a Haitian newspaper. Also with us is Marlena Doubt, a professor of French and African diaspora studies at Yale University. We're also hearing from you. Woody tweets, I think Haiti needs a special force to help the Haitian people have a new election and establish a new government. Stephanie tweets, why does the U.S. need to intervene? Let them be. And one of you tweeted this, Haitian people should be able to determine their own fate. Biden said, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, giving billions with no conditions or strings. But for Haiti, he is leading a coalition of condescending colonizers and invaders who are feigning innocence about meddling. We'll continue our discussion on Haiti's complicated history and uncertain future in just a moment. Now let's get back to the latest out of Haiti by bringing another voice into the conversation. Gerline Joseph is the president of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. That's a nonprofit advocating for the rights of Haitian migrants and immigrants. Gerline, welcome. Thank you for having me. I want to start with the treatment of Haitian immigrants by the U.S. It's been over a year since 15,000 Haitian migrants tried to flee Haiti and were confined to a squalid camp in Mexico. Some were attacked by Border Patrol agents on horseback. Briefly remind us what happened there. Absolutely. And uh, we saw it, the world finally saw what we have been telling them for years, the treatment of specifically black migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. And I should say the mistreatment, therefore. And as you mentioned, uh, over 26,000 people of Haitian descent have been sent to Haiti, including pregnant women and babies who were just born eight days before their deportation. And we look into the history between Haiti and the United States, the history between uh, uh, U.S. immigration and the Haitian community. And we always say it is not lost on us because it's not the first time that Haitians and black immigrants have been treated that way uh, uh, with 
within the U.S. immigration uh, system. But what we saw in the Rio in September of 2021 was horrific, was unacceptable, was was was. Uh, um, something that we are fighting right now to make sure never happens again. Because your organization, the Haitian Bridge Alliance, is suing the Biden administration on behalf of those migrants. Where does that stand? Yes, absolutely. Along with 11 of the people who were mistreated and abused under the bridge, including the gentleman whose likeness was, was seen around the world. And we could see the hand of the, of, of the white man in uniform holding his shirt, trying to push him and literally, literally almost trampled him under the horse. So we are currently in litigation and we are pushing for accountability and we are making sure that those people that were under the bridge, the man whose likeness was seen everywhere, who is so traumatized that he's in hiding and not wanting to even speak because he is so ashamed of what happened and also extremely in pain to see that the way he was mistreated, the way that 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 the report that was made by uh, by uh, um, U.S. immigration, USCIS, DHS, stating that what we saw was not what happened, mm-hmm. that what our eyes witnessed was not what happened, and they were able to take the lives and the realities of over fifteen thousand black people confined under the bridge into a thirty minutes clip video and released a shame report without even the decency of interviewing or connecting with one of the people we, who were abused and erased from under the bridge. Well, I want to bring Marlena in here to just give us a little more context around how the U.S. has approached immigration policy specifically towards Haitian migrants. Yes. So as Gerline mentioned, this there's a long history here. Um, in the 1980s, under the Duvalier dictatorship, um, the son, uh, Baby Doc, um, uh, when Haitian migrants came over, they were derogatively referred to um, by the U.S. government and in the media as boat people. And they were consistently turned away or detained, sometimes for years, in prisons in the United States awaiting their immigration trial. And they were denied asylum at the same time that immigrants from other politically embattled places in the Caribbean, like Cuba, were welcomed, um, provided with political asylum, whereas Haitians were described as kind of economic um, refugees, that they weren't fleeing political problems in their in their home country, and they were turned away at multiple borders across the United States, but principally in in Miami, um, where Haitians fleeing by boat um, ended up coming, and there, and not just that. This is, you know, obviously human rights problem because people died on this dangerous journey as well, and that continues uh, to this day. And so, the lack of compassion, um, and the mistreatment, and the prejudice that Haitians experience kind of compound the misery and um, and showing that the United States' approach to immigration when it comes to Haitian has been driven by racist ideas that have not pertained to to immigrants from other communities. We're getting more questions about the gangs in Haiti. Denny emails, do the Haitian gangs have a political or
or economic objective, or are they simply nihilists exploiting the chaos? And Chaco Cat tweets, the word gangs is confusing. It sounds like a wild bunch of guys sowing mayhem. If they were in a different country, would they be considered rebels or insurrectionists or political opposition? Whitlore, what can you tell us? Well, uh, let's take the case of Jimmy Cherizier, um, alias Barbecue. Um, he is, uh, like I said, a, one of the most powerful gang leaders in Haiti. Um, for the past year, he was trying to transform himself as a political leader um, with an agenda for for the people. He's always calling about, um, you know, calling for a revolution. But I, I think if you talk to experts, most of them will tell you that this is just a facade. Um, he is just one actor using uh, a powerful position um, with his people, with his coalition of nine other gangs um, to extract as much money as they can from businesses. Um, and also they attack the very people um, that they are supposed to or they claim to, to be defending. So. Um, and, and most gangs in Haiti right now are making money, uh, you know, in extortion, um, kidnappings, you know, um, in, in the south of the capital, for instance, um, it, no buses can 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 cross without paying. And if even sometimes if you pay, they will shoot you um, and, and and kill people in the buses. And that these these are things that happened um, regularly. So I, I I would say that most of them are, are opportunistic. Um, and also we need to point out the 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 economic context. The, the the high level of inequality that gives you um, a lot of desperate young people who goes into these uh, these organizations, these criminal organizations. This is another separate, um, you know, a conversation. But uh, yeah, they 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 are they, they they some of them claim to have political agendas, but it's 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 just a. We got this email from Gretchen who asks, if not for an international intervention, how do Haitians propose to return to a civil society? The gangs will not relinquish power unless they are made to by an armed force greater than their own. Uh, Gerline, I'd like to come to you first on this question. What level of foreign intervention do Haitians want in the country? Uh, Thank you so much for this question. But let's go back on how do we get here? And how did we get to this intense violence? It is really due to lack of possibilities, lack of hospital health care, lack of uh, uh, schools for the children, lack of infrastructure for people to survive. And so I always say this has been in the making for a very long time. And how do we resolve these issues is really by looking into how do we create a sustainable ecosystem in Haiti. The issues with gas should not have been happening if we had a proper governing body in the country who placed the people first. I am sitting right here in the jungle of the Darien, where Asian immigrants are literally dying every single day. When people are migrating due to what causes, which is currently in Haiti, extreme political instability, turmoil, gang violence, and we are seeing the result of that right here in Panama, in a rural place where they still have electricity, where we don't have electricity in the capital of Haiti. 
So when we are talking about all of that's what's happening right now, we have to be able to go back into looking at the root causes of, of, of what those issues are and be able to address those root causes of those issues in order for us to get to where we need to be. And that is why they are looking at the Haitian-led system to take Haiti out of where they are. And the people of Haiti in the diaspora are saying no to intervention in the form of military. What we need is to be able to come together. Those who quote unquote say they are friends of Haiti, they have Haiti's best interest at heart, need to go back into the ecosystem, infrastructure, to be able to allow people to survive and thrive where they are in the country. And we will see how peace can return and how the gains will disappear once we have a sustainable ecosystem. And people will say, how do we get there, right? We have very different steps to get there, but intervention, harm intervention is not the answer right now. Well, I just want to mention, Gerlene, you talked about being in the Darien Gap, and that's a, a treacherous stretch of jungle between Panama and Colombia, often used by migrants making their way to the U.S. from South America. We'll be talking about that on the show tomorrow. Uh, Whitlaw, I want to hear from you as well on this question of, of what you're hearing from Haitians about what kind of intervention they want, what shape they think it should take. Well, um, the intervention question is a very charged topic in Haiti. Um, why it is? Because as it's been pointed out, um, the horrific history of past inter interventions in, in Haiti that are fresh in the memories uh, of people. Remember, it's the UN, the uh, United Nations. Um, soldiers who bring the cholera in Haiti in 2010. This disease killed um, more than 10,000 people and at least 800,000 others were uh, you know, uh, infected by the disease. And, and, and this year, actually, uh, in the beginning of, of October, the cholera resurfaced and it's uh, already killing, uh, you know, uh, Haitians. Um, from, you know, it's been decades since we have year after year, different form of, you know, interference and interventions in Haiti. Um, but look at the country now, and this is why a lot of people actually um, are pronouncing themselves against. Uh, but, but at the same time, at the same time, uh, we need to see the political environment where we are right now in Haiti. Thousands of people are protesting in the streets asking the Prime Minister Ariel Henry to resign because they don't consider him legitimate. He promised many things when he became Prime Minister. He did not deliver on these promises. And so any help right now, any sort of um, intervention military would be perceived now as a help for this gentleman to stay in power when people don't want him to be in power. But when I talk to people, uh, especially uh, people in, you know, regular people uh, in Port-au-Prince or elsewhere in Haiti, most of them agree, agree that the Haitian National Police, which was created in 1995, and even at its inception, was not a, an institution that was capable of, you know, doing uh, its mandate and mission. And, and, and this continues until today. They accept the idea that this Haitian National Police cannot 
uh, by itself, you know, tackle the gangs and, and bring Haiti back to some stability. But they refuse any help uh, that would come um, in a context where, uh, you know, they they could attack uh, people protesting, um, you know, this government that they consider illegitimate. We got this email from George who says, I am born Haitian and proud of it. We are still paying for the audacity of declaring independence from France. Fixing Haiti needs generational investment. We need to know what the people want and need to then forge paths for self-governance and sustainability. We have just about 30 seconds left here. Gerlina, I'd like to give you the last word. What does a way forward in Haiti look like to you? Thank you so much, and thank you, George, for the for the statement. Uh, it is so true. Uh, I believe that Haiti is is not only a country, but it is an ideology. It is a a, a new concept that was unacceptable back then, and is still unacceptable back now. And just to repeat, Frederick Douglass, Haiti is black, and we have not yet forgiven Haiti for being black, and forgiven the Almighty for making her black. Understanding if a group of Africans were able to create a nation, to create a new ideology, it is proof that they can guide and direct themselves. So I do believe that we can, we can once again be that, but given the fact that we cannot continue to have international interference, internal violence and external violence at the same time. Our thanks to Gerline Joseph. She's the president of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, that's a nonprofit advocating for the rights of migrants and immigrants. Also, Marlena Doubt, a professor of French and African diaspora studies at Yale University, and Whitlor Marincourt. He's the editor in chief of the Aibo Post, that's a Haitian newspaper. He joined us today from Port au Prince. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.